be seated. Open your Bible, please, to Habakkuk. We're going to continue our study in Habakkuk, and we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 20 tonight. We're going to look at this chapter where the Lord begins to talk to his prophet, his wandering prophet, the prophet who has asked him, what are you up to? And then been shocked by the answer, and, dis, and in a certain sense, dismayed by the answer. I wouldn't say displeased by the answer, because Habakkuk is a faithful man of God. And he knows that all God's ways are good and right. And even when he doesn't understand them, he knows that God never does anything that's unnecessary or unhelpful for the good of his people. But Habakkuk's question to God is, how can you use those who are more wicked than your people as a correction to your people? How can it be that you would use the wicked Babylonians who are, uh, we've heard about them, we know they're coming, we know that they're dangerous, we know they're vicious. How is it that you can use them to correct your people? Aren't they worse than we are? And God has said to him, I've got an answer to your question. We're going to go deeper into that question tonight. And Habakkuk's further question is, how do we live? How do your people who are faithful live through the chaos? How do your people who are faithful live through what's coming? And God gives to the prophet satisfying answers to these questions. And so we'll go a little farther in our study tonight out of Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 20. And the word of the Lord says this, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? And then you will be spoiled for them. Because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nests on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who will build a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it's not from the Lord of, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. 
The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the, te- the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We need the Lord's help to understand tonight. Lord, we do need your help. Get me out of the way and just speak through your word. Let your people be blessed tonight. Let them see the vision of your sovereignty and your grace and your glory tonight. Because you are the judge of all the earth who brings all things about according to your perfect plan. Let us see you tonight. Let our hearts be encouraged as we read your prophet, your answer to your prophet so many years ago. Help us, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we've lived through another week of earthly chaos. And I don't know about you, but it just seems to get worse and worse every week, doesn't it? Doesn't it just seem like things are spinning more and more quickly out of control, like, like uh, the chaos on planet Earth is when you just didn't think it could get any worse, guess what? It gets worse. And it seems like this is our story. I, I, you know, I, I feel like, in a certain sense, I feel like the prophet Jeremiah. I seem to stand here every Sunday night and say this, but it's true, isn't it? We feel it in our souls, that things are just becoming more and more chaotic. And just when we think it can't get any worse, it actually probably, unfortunately, will. And so we really need the word of the Lord that comes to us through the book of Habakkuk because Habakkuk is speaking to this. This is a book for this generation. This is a book for this moment in time. Habakkuk has been experiencing these very same things in his day. He's living just before the Babylonians come and sweep away into captivity the the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Habakkuk is living in a, in a time of great immorality. He's living in a time of great disobedience by the people of God. The people that God has called to be his own uh, prized possession, who have gotten the light. God has given them the revelation of the scriptures, of who he is. He has revealed himself to the people of Israel. And the people of Judah have turned away from him. They filled the courtyard of the temple with idols. Uh, There is a a ritualistic kind of worship of God that's going on. And Habakkuk says, Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? And the Lord says, not much longer. The Babylonians are going to come, and they're going to be my instrument for correction. And you've been with us, most of you, for the last two weeks. You know that this message that Habakkuk has received is a message that was unexpected, unanticipated, and in certain ways confusing to him. He said, how can you do that? He said, I know about these people. These people are worse than we are. These people are brutal. These people just crush nations under their feet. We're going to see some of that tonight in in chapter 2 when God talks about what his plan is for the Babylonians. And God says, yes, I know that, but they're going to be my instrument. And after I finished with them, or after I finished 
disciplining my people and purifying the remnant of my people, then I'm going to turn my attention to them. And that really is what we have before us tonight. In this second chapter, God begins to speak to Habakkuk about these two things. Number one, as we saw last week in verses 2 and 3 and 4, God speaks to his prophet about how the faithful people of God will live in the midst of the storm that was coming. I believe we need to know this tonight. I believe that it, that it very, very well may be that there's a tremendous storm that is coming on planet Earth. And the people of God need to know that it's coming so that they won't be knocked off their feet when it arrives. And they need the biblical answer for how we're to live during that time of confusion and chaos and disorder and violence, perhaps even, that's coming on planet Earth. And the answer to how we live is in these first four verses. And then in verses 5, on down to the end of the chapter, God begins to give to his prophet Habakkuk the rest of the story. The rest of the story about what he's going to do to that vicious, dirty instrument of Babylon that he's going to use as a rod of correction to his people, that he's got a plan for them too. And that after he's finished using them to correct his people, he'll deal with them. And we're going to see that tonight too. The big idea that we're dealing with tonight is that God has a plan for his people in chaotic times. God has a plan for his people in chaotic times. And God has a plan for the wicked who caused the chaos. Aren't you glad that those two things are true? Aren't you glad that we're not simply cast to the wind and cast to our own devices when we live in moments like this? Now, we looked at verses 2 through 4 in detail last week, so we don't need to go into detail, but I want to remind you of this. Some of you were not here, and others of you, uh, like me, probably need the refresher. And so we're just going to look briefly at that, and our passage tonight is going to break out in three movements. Uh, The first is verses 2 through 4, where God has a word to the righteous. In verses 2 through 4, there's a word to the righteous. How do we live while the chaos is going on? And then he has a word about the wicked in verses 5 through 20, down to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to go back and look at just three verses uh, at the very end, verse 4, verse 14, and verse 20, where God gives us three words of assurance, three words of assurance as we live through chaotic times, comforts to our heart. So that's the plan for where we're going tonight. Let's look first of all in verses 2 through 4, where God gives a word to the righteous. There's a certain sense in which Habakkuk's question is, this is a dead practical question. I mean, the practical question is, okay, God, I understand that chaos is part of your plan. I understand that discipline is coming. I understand that you're doing a good thing by purifying your people by what's coming. But how are we supposed to live during this time? There is a faithful remnant. Aren't you glad that there's always a faithful remnant in every generation? You know, God, as, as bad as things get on planet Earth, we have a promise. Jesus has promised us that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And aren't you glad that the Lord has told us this? Doesn't it bring comfort to our hearts? So even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of, a, of, a, of a, an apparently just declining and crashing situation, We can take comfort in the fact that God has got a plan and he's got a remnant that he's preserving in every generation. Remember Elisha? 
Elisha, you know, he has this wonderful victory on Mount Carmel. And then Jezebel threatens him and he, he runs for his life and he runs down to Sinai, the mountain of God. And God says, Elisha, what are you doing here? Elijah. He said, Elijah, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm the only one left, you know. They've killed all the rest and I'm the only one left. And God says, you're a bonehead. I mean, that's my paraphrase. You're not going to find that in any of the modern translations. <laughs> God says, listen, I got 7,000 people in that northern kingdom that, that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one left. I always preserve a remnant. Aren't you glad that God always preserves a remnant? Well, one of the ways that God preserves the remnant is by the remnant being faithful in the midst of the discipline. And so what God tells to Habakkuk in these uh, first three verses, in verse 2 and 3 and 4, are the three secrets to persevering through the difficult times that come. And as we saw last week, they're very plain things. They're things that all of God's people can do. What does he say? He says in verse 2, watch my word. Keep your eyes on the book. You know, one of the things that we need to do is cling to our Bibles. I told you several weeks ago about the story I heard about Francis Schaeffer, that as he was dying, he couldn't read his Bible anymore, but he asked if he could have it just to hold it. He just wanted to hold it close to his heart, you know, because the Bible was so sweet to Schaeffer. It had been so crucial to him. And, you know, this is the, this is the way we need to feel about our Bibles. When difficult times come, the very last thing we ought to do is stop digging into the Word of God. It's the Word of God that will give us stability. It's the Word of God that will give us maturity. It is knowing the things of God that bring us into the depth that we need. Paul talks about this in one of his epistles. He says, I want you to, to mature the believers. I want you believers to come to maturity so that you won't be tossed around by every wind of doctrine, so that you won't be knocked off your feet when the troubles come. You've got to know the book so that you can be stable when the winds are blowing. And this is, what, this is what God says to him. He says, write this prophecy I'm going to give you on tablets and write it like, put it on a billboard so that everybody can see it. Make sure that nobody misses it. And I think we, it, we will be negligent if we do not say that the very first thing that we need to be committed to, if we're going to stand on our feet in difficult times, is our commitment to the Word of God. To study it, to know it, to love it, to practice it, all the things about it. We gather together on Sundays for a very specific reason. We want to come together to worship. We want to come together to show that we believe. We want to come together to enjoy the presence of God through the family of God. But we also come together so that people can open the book and tell us what it says. Just bring us the book. Just give us the book. This is where our strength will come. It's impossible for us to become mature in the faith if we do not know the riches that God has put in the book. This is where our strength comes. And, and God says to Habakkuk, now write it down so nobody can miss it. Make sure they don't miss the book. The first secret of being able to endure through the difficulty is to keep your eyes on the book. The second secret is in verse 3. He says, wait. He says, await. He says, he says my, my plan is on schedule. You're going to think it's never coming. The vision still awaits its appointed time. God says, I've got an appointed time to bring about the vision that, I've, that I'm giving you. I'm going to deal with everything. 
There's a perfect time that I'm going to bring it all to pass. He says it hastens to the end. He says it's rushing toward its conclusion. He says it's not a lie. What I planned, I am going to fulfill. What I have planned, I'm going to do. Aren't you glad that God's going to do everything that he's promised? God is going to do everything he's promised. Open your book anywhere. Open your Bible anywhere. Put your finger on anything. God's going to keep that promise. Wherever your finger falls, he's either already done it or he's in the process of doing it or he's going to do it before it's over with. God will keep his promises. We need to know that. When difficult moments come, when the chaos is swirling around us, when planet Earth seems to be losing its senses and flying off in every direction, we need to know that God is in charge and he's going to keep his promises. Everything he has said he's going to do, he is going to do. He's going to bring it about. And if we lose hope in that, then we're going to be scattered to the wind like leaves before a, 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 a autumn leaves before a, a fall wind. They're just scattered. But if you know what the promises are, and if you are confident in who God is and know that he always keeps his promises, you will be able to stand and navigate no matter what comes about on planet earth. This is how we are strong. We have our Bible in front of us and we have confidence in the God who keeps his promises and never, never fails to do what he's saying. And this is what what God is saying to Habakkuk. He says, if it seems slow, wait for it. Doesn't the coming of the Lord Jesus seem slow to you? How long have you been waiting for Jesus to come? You know, we've been waiting for, the church has been waiting for Jesus to come for nearly 2,000 years. But you know what? He's coming. He's going to come. There's going to be a day. We may be alive when that day comes. We may not be alive. We, We will be alive with him. We may be in the grave waiting for that resurrection or in heaven waiting to come back and get that new body that he's promised us. But you can, t- you can take it to the bank. It's not slow in coming. Jesus is going to come just at the right time. Just at the time that God has planned, he's coming again. He's going to bring our loved ones with him that have already gone. And we're going to be reunited with the people we loved who are already in his presence. And this is how we encourage our hearts. That Jesus is going to keep his promise and that God is going to keep his promise. These things are going to be fulfilled. He says, it will surely come. It will not delay. God is not taking too long. He's taking exactly the right amount of time for his plan to be fulfilled. And then the fourth secret is trust in his faithfulness. And here we get to this crucial verse, this key verse of the whole book. He talks about the puffed up man. He talks about Babylon, frankly. He says these people, their souls are puffed up. They're self-centered. They're stuck on themselves. And their hearts are not upright within them. Their souls are not upright. They are not believers. They are people who, who, who are, you know, there are only two ways you can live your life. Either you're God or God is God. Take your choice. And that's the way that that things are on planet Earth. And by the way, if you're God, you're doing a miserable job. See me immediately after church because this is a mess. So if you're in charge of this, I'd like to know. But you know what? 
the God who's really in charge of this said, no, I'm planning the mess, and the mess is my mess so that I can bring everything about the way, the way that I have planned it. And so what he says is, he says, hang on to your book, trust the fact that I'm going to keep my promise. And then he says, live by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. The secret to God's power flowing through us as New Testament believers is to live faithfully. It is when we trust and obey what God has said in his word that the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed in our hearts and through us into the world around us. The ho- God has... You, leave it to God to work out the easiest way to do things, right? Do you know what the easiest way to do things is? Just tell, if you're God, you just say, trust me. Trust me, I'm going to take care of it. Just hang on, I'm going to do it. Just walk by faith. I'll take care of all the hard stuff. You just walk by faith. And this is what the secret is to being able to live through chaotic times. Know your Bible. Trust that God's going to keep his promises and walk in the faith every day. Look into your, you know, <laughs> do you know what God did for me when I was, when I was, I was, I was a mess. I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. And one day I woke up and said, God, I'm going to open the Bible and I'm going to look into it. And whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. You know what happened when I did that? Everything changed. Everything changed because that's just what God tells us to do. He said, this is what living by faith is. Don't you realize I saved you for this? I saved you through faith and I saved you for faith. And it's by faith that I'm going to take you through the mess. You know, we come to the Lord by trusting and obeying what he says, but we live in the Lord by trusting and obeying what he says. It's really pretty easy. Open the book and do what you're told. That's, that's it. And so this is the way that we live through this. The doctrinal point of these three verses is simply that this is how we're to make it through the chaos as we wait on God to finish his plan. We're to watch his word, await his work, and trust in his faithfulness. And he's going to be the one who brings us through. Now, Habakkuk receives from the Lord next in verses 5 through 20, a word about the wicked. There's a word about the wicked. So Habakkuk, uh, he's, it's as if God says to him, now, now here's what you're to do. Now, so that you will not lose hope and think that uh, somehow things have gotten out of control, I want you to know what I'm going to do with Babylon. I want you to know after I've finished using them, what my plans are for them. Because I not only have a plan for you, but I have a plan for the wicked. Did you know that God has a plan for the wicked? God not only has a plan for the righteous, he also has a plan for the wicked. Would you like to know what it is? It's right here in these verses. What we're going to find in these verses are five woes. There are this uh, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Happens five times in these verses, five through 20. And uh, this word for the wicked tells us what God's attitude is and what he's going to do about the wickedness of man. Don't you think God needs to do something about the wickedness of man? I think he does. I think we're living in a very wicked time. God's got a plan. He's going to handle it. In verse 5, God characterizes for us who these puffed up people are. He talks to us about the self-centered man. Campbell Morgan helps us a lot. He says, 
Today, there are two principles of life in the world and only two. The principle of the puffed up who are self-centered and conditioned by circumstance and the principle of the righteous by faith who are God-centered and God-circumferenced. Morgan tells us there are only these two kinds of people on planet Earth. Do you know there are only two kinds of people on planet Earth? I believe this. I believe this with all my heart. There are only two kinds of people. Forget about, forget about nations. Forget about cultures. Forget about races. Forget about uh, uh, rich and poor. There are only two kinds of people on planet Earth. There are the puffed up self-centered who put their faith in themselves. And there are the people who've abandoned faith in ourselves and turned our attention to put our faith in God. It's the only two kinds of people that exist on planet Earth. We're in different colors. We're in different strata. We're in different nations. But there are just these two kinds of people. They're the ones who trust themselves and who put their confidence in themselves. And there are those of us who have had our eyes open to the fact that that is a dead end. Have you learned that that's a dead end? Do you know that that's the, the deadest dead end you can ever get to? Is to trust yourself? Is to put your confidence in you instead of putting your confidence in God? Two kinds of people. Morgan goes on, he says, when a man has his faith in God, God's the center of his being and is the circumference of his being. God is everywhere. Do you know when, God, when you've got your faith in God, and as you walk with God through the years, you begin to see God everywhere. You, you find him, uh, we were talking in the book, in the book club about these nature documentaries that Gwen and I used to uh, like to watch, you know, where the flamingos come from miles away to be at just the right place once every 10 years to reproduce. Uh, who tells them to get there when the rain comes? Well, it's, it's God who does that. But you know, some of you perhaps don't want to watch those nature documentaries because they use the word evolution. Are you like that? Okay, grow up. Do you know how to eat watermelon? Eat the watermelon, spit out the seeds. You can watch those things and find out how tremendous God is. I, I, you know, you don't have to buy everything that they're telling you, but, but don't put yourself in some kind of a bubble where you're unwilling to listen to the other points of view because God's truth is all over nature and God's truth is all over the other opinions that people have got. Why are we hiding away and not listening to the opinions of other people? Do you know, God's tr we find echoes of God's truth all over planet Earth. He's left intimations of himself everywhere, you know. So let's, let's not hide out someplace. All truth is God's truth. And we can, we, can, we can profit from these things. Eat the melon and spit out the seeds. How hard is that? Can I get an amen? How hard is that? Come on. Let's be adults here. We don't have to hide in a corner someplace. Okay, now, so much for that soapbox. Can I get an amen for that? All right. So the self-centered man is characterized, as we're told in verse 5, by arrogance and greed. Arrogance and greed, self-centered. He thinks he is the, he, you know, there's this word in, in, in the book of Job, surely you are the people and the wisdom will die with you. And that's the way the self-centered man looks at himself. We are the people and the wisdom will die with us. When we're gone, there's no more wisdom on planet earth. That's the self-centered man. Now, what does, what characterizes him and what's God going to do about it? This is where we come to the five woes. Verses 6 through 8 give us the first of those woes. The, the self-centered man is characterized by selfish ambition. 
He's characterized by selfish ambition. Uh, look what it says in verse 6. It says, uh, the, the, shall not these take up their taunt against him, the ones that he has, uh, has uh, brutalized? With scoffing and riddles, they're going to say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with, pledge, with pledges. He's greedy. He's greedy. He's ambitious to pile up as much as he can, any way he can, and he'll brutalize others to do that. This is the self-centered man, one of the characteristics. He is selfishly ambitious. Now, there's nothing wrong with a proper ambition. Ambition is not a dirty word. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul uses it twice, at least twice, in his writings. In Romans 15, 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. So Paul says, there's a proper ambition. One of the things that I'm ambitious for, Paul says, is to preach the gospel where nobody else has been. I want to go where nobody's heard the gospel yet. And, and that's my ambition in life. So it's a proper ambition. Paul mentions another proper ambition in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. You should be ambitious to be pleasing to the Lord. We should be ambitious for people who haven't heard the gospel to hear the gospel. These are proper ambitions. There's nothing wrong with ambition unless it is totally selfish. Unless the things that we're ambitious for are, are puffing us up. Things like uh, more possessions, as uh, these verses seem to say that Babylon was. Uh, things of, uh, I want to be uh, uh, famous. Uh, you know, I want to be, I want to have power. Uh, I, why? Because I'm the, I'm the, I am the person and the wisdom is going to die with me. This is why. So there's this selfish ambition. And God says, I'm going to deal with selfish ambition. God says, I will not let that stand, that I'm going to come and judge that. I will repay those who have selfish ambition. Warren Wiersbe gives us a good word. By the way, I'm indebted to Wiersbe for the outline of tonight's message. So I'll confess my sins on that. Babylon, says Wiersbe, had plundered, plundered other nations, and she herself was plundered. Babylon had shed rivers of blood, and her blood, her blood was shed. Wiersbe notes, it's a basic law of the universe that eventually we reap what we sow. It's a basic law of the universe that eventually we reap what we sow. And that's what God is saying. He says, these people who are selfishly ambitious are going to reap what they sow. What they've done to others is going to be done to them. Because that's the way God even scores. Second woe is in verses 9 through 11. It's a woe to the covetous. The Babylonians were greedy. They were a rapacious empire that delighted in crushing smaller nations and carrying their wealth back to Babylon. With their ill-gotten wealth, they built a magnificent empire around a spectacular city. Babylon's strengthening of walls and spectacular defenses caused the Babylonians to believe that they were impervious, that they were undefeatable. Babylon believed that they could not be beaten. As a matter of fact, on the very night that the city of Babylon itself fell, the king had such chutzpah. Can I call it chutzpah? 
audacious boldness. I know it's a Yiddish word, and you know he was a he was a Babylonian guy, but let's use it anyway. The guy had such chutzpah that he threw a party when the besieging armies were outside the walls of the city. That's how unconcerned they were. They said, we have gotten all of the wealth in the world. We have built these walls. We have, our covetousness has paid off for us. We are safe and secure. And God said, no, you're not. God says, I repay the covetous. Again, what uh, Wiersbe says, the Babylonians took land that wasn't theirs in order to build an empire that glorified them and assured them of safety. Their goal was security, like the eagle's nest on the high mountain crags. Of course, this is a false security. Listen to this. We need to remember this. Because no individual or nation can build walls high enough to keep God out. No individual or nation can build walls high enough to keep God out. When God says it's time for the accounting to come, the accounting will come. Look at verses 12 through 14. Here's another woe. Woe to those who exploit people. Woe to those who exploit people. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and that nations weary themselves for nothing? He says, God's the one who builds nations. God's the one who does these things. And he says, the problem with you Babylonians is you're exploiting people. Now, let me tell you what the Babylonians would do. They would crush smaller nations, and then they would carry the cream of the crop back to Babylon to serve basically as slave labor to build their society with. We read this morning, Pastor Todd was reading us out of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel was one of those captives. He was the cream of the crop, you know in the, in the, the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. And they said, well, now we're not going to put him working on laying bricks. This young man and his three companions seem to have some extra skills. So what we're going to do is we're going to make them serve us as, in administration. And this is what the Babylonians would do all over the world. They would capture people. They would bring them back. They built this magnificent society, this magnificent city on slave labor on captured peoples who were put to work doing these things. They were abusing people. They thought they were pretty smart by doing that. God says, you're not smart because I'm going to repay that too. Babylon was built by bloodshed, the blood of innocent victims. It was built by prisoners of war, slave labor that was exploited to the fullest extent. Babylon was proud of what she'd built, but God said it won't last. What man builds without God can never last. We can't exploit man made in God's image and expect to escape God's judgment. It may take time, but eventually the judgment falls, says Wearsby. This is God's thing. It says you exploit people, but there's going to come an end to that. One of these days, I'm going to put it right. And then there's another woe in 15 through 17. Woe to those who practice drunkenness and violence. Now, it'll help us to understand that in Scripture, often the picture of wine, a cup of wine is used to signify wrath, to signify wrath. And I believe what's being said here is that the, these people had been wrathful. They had poured out violence. They had poured out violence so strongly that it was almost as if it made the people that were, 
were having the violence practice against them like they, they staggered like drunken men. They couldn't believe what was going on. And the picture here is very, is very vivid that they're pouring out the wrath on these nations and making them stagger as if intoxicated and their fury was stripping these nations of the, their powers and left them naked to the invader's fury. The Lord says, is that what you've done to others? then that's what I'm going to do to you. This is what he says here. God will repay those who practice violence and wrath. And then look at verses 18 through 20. Woe to those who worship idols. Woe to those who worship idols. The Babylonians were idol worshipers. Uh, They uh, thought they were God, and so they're making demigods. They're making little tiny gods to try to control their world. And this is what humanity always does. Humanity, in order to try to control the world that we live in, we uh, we try to take the creation and turn it into a God and try to to make matters dance to our commands by making our own gods. We still do this even in the 20th century, 21st century. We are in the 21st century now, aren't we? We still do this even in the 21st century. Humanity's still making their own gods. God says, that's not going to go on forever. I'm going to put an end to that. God says, I'm going to do away with that too. Now, the doctrinal point of these verses that contain these woes is that God had told Habakkuk that he was going to deal with the Babylonians according to their arrogance, according to their greed, to their selfish ambition, and their self-centeredness. In a certain sense, sin pronounces its own penalty. There's a sense in which sin pronounces its own penalty. God says, is that what you're doing? Then that's what's going to be done to you. God repays. Now, finally, in three verses, verse 4 and verse 14 and verse 20, a word of assurance. God interspersing within this prophecy of judgment on the Babylonians intersperses for his people three words that can give us great comfort as we think about this. God is going to do these things. And the first thing he tells us, the first word of comfort he gives us is back in verse four. And the word of comfort he gives us is grace. The righteous shall live by faith. God says to his people, I will take care of you. My grace will be sufficient. My grace will rescue you. Stick with the book. Wait on me. Live by faith. My grace will bring you through. We need that word of comfort, don't we? The second word of comfort is in verse 14, where God says, my glory is going to be satisfied, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God says, humanity struts his little time upon the stage and then will be heard no more. And when the story is over with, All that's going to be left is the glory of God, just the glory of God. And you and I will rejoice in the glory of God and reflect that glory for all of eternity. And then finally, the last word of comfort is in verse 20, where God speaks to us about his sovereignty. We can take comfort in the fact that we are the children of the sovereign God, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is sovereign. The story will come out where God says it's going to come out. 
And we have been written into the story because we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are three words of comfort for us. The doctrinal point of these words is simply that God has not left our wandering hearts without comfort in the time of chaos. We can rest in His grace. We can be confident that He's going to be glorified. We can be comforted by the fact that He's sovereign. As we're waiting for Him to work out His plan, we need to remind ourselves over and over and over and over again that we're in the hands of the one who loves us and who is working all things together for the good of his people. This is our comfort. Now, uh, you may be noticing that as we did this tonight, I didn't make any applications. I didn't have any set applications. If you, if you listen to the preaching, you will notice that there's a pattern to my preaching that I always give you the doctrinal point, and then I give you an illustration, and then I give you the application for how it works in your world. And I haven't given you that application for how it works in your world other than some spontaneous stuff that you got just gratis. So you're saying, now, pastor, how could you do that? Don't you know that if you preach without application, you haven't done anybody any good? Ah, yes, but. Ah, yes, but. God himself makes the application in chapter 3. And that's what's coming next week. So you're just going to have to cool your jets. The application will be coming next week. We will see what God says. Habakkuk is going to respond to God in prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. And we'll work through that next week. But for the moment, you'll just have to be content to work out your own applications. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you that your word helps us in practical ways. We thank you that you've given us all the help we need, everything we need for life and godliness right here in the pages of your book. Your spirit helps us understand, brings it to life. Thank you for it. Thank you for speaking to us today. Help us to be people who keep our eyes on the book, who wait patiently upon you, and who walk by faith every day. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.